This is the word of God to us. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Corey. Hey, good morning, church. Are you doing okay? All right, a rowdy bunch this Labor Day. Two people are ready to go. Let's party. Hey, I'm really glad that you guys are here. And uh, if you're new to Frontline, my name is Chad Kinser. If you're a, a long timer, I'm, I'm really glad to share this morning with you. I've just been struck this morning with what a privilege it is to be a pastor and an elder in our church to open God's word with you. And um, if you are new to our church, maybe you've been around for a while and we haven't really had explained to you why we do this whole standing in the honor of reading God's word, we, we actually believe that every word that comes from scripture is the word of God to us. These are God's perfect, truthful, and trustworthy words. There's no mixture of error and they're, just, they're coming to us as God would intend. So they come to us with the very authority as if God himself were standing in this room speaking to us. He's bound himself to his word like that. He's revealed himself. And so when the king speaks, people stand and recognize he's speaking. So I'm not trying to do anything outside of God's word. I'm trying to come in the stream of it and, and, and make sense of it for us today. And that's really important because in the passage we look at today, Jesus is about to say some things that you're like, can Jesus say that? And Jesus is about to do some things that you're like, is that appropriate? Um, and I was talking with a friend this week about this passage, and he goes, yeah, it's one of those passages where you remember, if Jesus has never confused you, then you've probably never met him. And you probably never met him. So let's pray. Let's try to make sense of this by the help of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll see how God would shape us. Hey, maybe just take a second with your head bowed um, and offer your own prayer to God of help and of presence and just asking him to help you hear from him today. And take a second, if you would, and just pray for me, that what I say would be helpful. 
Father, we submit this time to you. Uh, We submit ourselves to you. And we come before your word knowing (laughs) that you always... You always speak for our good. You always speak for our formation. And you always speak to tether us to you. And so we confess that you're good today. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You and I are in a moment here, if you're residents of Oklahoma City, it's a really fun moment to live in this city. People are moving from all over the place. Our city is growing. Uh, Things are being built. Downtown has been long revitalized and is still growing and developing. And so it's a fun time to be in this city. Different people coming from different places, different experiences, different subcultures. And so maybe, maybe you're here today and you've grown up in what has historically been called the Bible Belt, like, like me. But maybe you're here and you've come from outside of the Bible Belt. But, but regardless of where you're from and regardless of how you're landing in this room today, here's what I know to be true that we all share in common. We, we all have a common experience around religion. You say, do we? Do we really? Well, we have different stories for sure. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're not really sure about the claims of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for years. But what I mean by the fact that we all have a common experience of religion is this. All of us have a tendency, whether you've been around the game for a while or you're new to it, we have a tendency to see or perceive religion to be primarily about what we do. Right? We see and perceive religion primarily based on how good we've been or how good we haven't been, right? To see what's happening in the church will reduce Christianity to how well we've measured up to what we imagine to be the standard of righteousness or how we've failed that standard. To be about our moral achievements or our moral failures on the other side. We, we see this uh, maybe as even reduced to sort of our commitments at being a better person. So what we're here doing is we're singing songs and we're listening to someone talk to us because we're committed to being better people and maybe you're here because I'm just trying to turn over a new leaf, right? And sure, we would say that, that God has done something important for us. He's done something that seems special to us uh, in, in sending his son, Jesus. But what really counts is what we do. What really counts is what we make of our lives. And so maybe you're here today and you're operating in that kind of mindset. You're operating in that kind of belief system. That somehow, some way, if I can sort of make the perfect cocktail of my trajectory of goodness and God's trajectory of goodness, then somehow divine things can work in my favor. But it's got to be my effort plus his effort equals good things for me. We tend to view Christianity that way. We tend to view even institutional religion that way. But the problem with viewing things that way is the Bible. Even though that's like our natural drift, even though we kind of go there by just sort of our common experience in the world, that's definitively not the message of the Bible. Whatever that is, is not Christianity. Whatever that is, is not what we're doing here. And our passage today is actually going to call us out of that drift. It's going to call us out of the drift of what we do, and it's going to shift us again on what God has done, on what God has done. There's no more important thing in the universe than what God has done. And so there's three things I want us to see, three turns in our passage today. The first is the nature of true religion. The nature of true religion, true religion comes to us. And then thirdly, true religion comes with a vengeance. The true nature of religion, true religion comes to us, and true religion comes with a vengeance. Let's pick up in the first one. We'll break this down sort of verse by verse. 
the nature of true religion. Pick up in 24. It says, Then he arose, and he went away to the, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so if you've been with us the last couple of weeks or you've tracked through the book of Mark, you know that there, there's a section here where Jesus is just trying to look for some rest. Like he's been walking on water. He's been feeding the multitudes. He's been having some knockdown, drag out uh, sort of con- confrontations with the religious leaders of his day. And he's just kind of going, I, I need a break. And so he's been looking for sort of like a weekend retreat. And he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go outside of the Jewish provinces. I'm going to go outside of the borders of Israel. And I'm going to go into the region of the Gentiles. Maybe there I can, I can get out of my own zip code. No one will recognize me and I can have some downtime. He tries this, but it, it doesn't work. This woman hears of him, pick up in 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she had begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And so here's what happens. Jesus rolls out of his own zip code, and someone hears of him. This this woman hears of him, and she breaks into his Airbnb, like unannounced, not welcomed. She had no invite card. She just rolls in, hears of him. She falls down at his feet. He's trying to get some couch time, and she's begging him to heal her daughter. And we're told that she was a Syrophoenician, which just bottom line simply means she wasn't a Jew. She was born uh, in a different land of a different people, of different belief systems. She wasn't Jewish. Now, here's where we get a clue of what Mark is trying to do in this passage. Why, why do we get this story? Why is this here? And what is he trying to show us? If you remember last week, Josh talked about the passage before where Jesus has this confrontation, this argument with the religious leaders of his day. They've got all these traditions, all these rituals, all these sort of external religious order, but he confronts them because he says, you're, you're so obsessed with your moral aptitude. You're so obsessed with your religious devotion, but the reality is your hearts are actually really far from God. You're caught up in religious image management And you have no love for people, no love for God, no love for people. You're just concerned about how you're perceived in your religious order. They keep attacking Jesus. He calls out their hypocrisy. And here's the irony. The very people that Jesus came to minister to, the very people that had the word of God, the very people that he came as his own brothers and sisters of the Jewish race, were the people who couldn't understand. Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, then why do you keep talking to us about sin and repentance? In their minds, we don't need to be talked to about being saved. We're the people of God. We don't need to be talked to about the brokenness of this world. What we need to be saved from is the hostility of the nations around us and established as the powerful people of God. And they need to recognize who we are. The problem, Jesus, isn't with our hearts. The problem is with our circumstances. Just get Rome off of our backs and let the nations know that we are the people of God. Why isn't he here congratulating us and executing judgment on the nations? So that was the encounter before this one. So what what Mark is trying to do is now trace out the dots for us. The religious people of the day have this man-centered, human sort of effort of understanding themselves and God. And he's contrasting that now with the story of a woman who comes to Jesus with no entitlement, no no credentials. She just throws herself at his feet asking for mercy. There's a contrast here of true religion. 
This woman was risking so much when she fell down at the feet of Jesus. Not only was she not welcomed to his weekend retreat home, but she was crossing the wrong side of the tracks on every level, ethnically. She wasn't a Jew. And so in that day, for even Jews to inter- interact with a Gentile was taboo. Most Jews even saw a conversation with a Gentile as making them religiously unclean. And in their day, a woman certainly wasn't supposed to approach a rabbi. She knew this. She's crossing every boundary, racially, religiously, morally, culturally, in every possible way, and she just doesn't care. She's crossing every line of taboo, and all that she knows is that Jesus is the only one who will do for her. I've got to have him. And so do you see the contrast in the kingdom of God between those who think much of themselves and those who are willing to give themselves up in the presence of God. Here, pick up in 27, Jesus responds to her. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. That's not nice, Jesus. That's very unkind. That's offensive. Hey, this is a moment where like the WWJD bracelet doesn't seem to work. You don't talk this way to people, right? So what's happening here? This woman comes in her distress. She throws himself at her feet. No entitlement, no credentials, nothing at all, just begging for his mercy. And he calls her a dog, which would have been a common way that Jews referred to Gentiles in those days. He's calling her an outsider. What's going on? Jesus is talking to her in a parable. He's talking to her in metaphor. The idea is, anyone knows this who lives in a house, dogs don't eat at the table. Like, well, my dog eats at the table. Your dog shouldn't eat at the table. (laughs) The idea is this, that when food is served at the dinner table, the family eats. And if the dog eats from the table, it's going to eat whatever falls from the table, whatever's left over, and sort of as a treat to Fido, right? Here you go. We love you around here. Have a bite, right? The dog doesn't eat first. And so Jesus is referring, what he's doing in this sort of parable, he's referring to the priority and his mission in the world. He came first to bring the kingdom of God to Jewish brothers and sisters, and then out from there to the nations, right? And what he's suggesting to her is the time isn't now. You're a Gentile. Like, I've come first to my own brothers and sisters, and then you second. But the time is not now yet for the gospel to go to your people, But notice how she responds in verse 28. She responds, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she comes back, and she won't take no for an answer. It's not going to go down like that. She even plays off the metaphor and throws it back to him. Hey, I understand what you're saying. I'm not even offended that you just called me an outsider, a dog. I know I don't belong at your table. I know I have no business asking someone like you for help but you're the only one who makes a difference. I know that there's more enough for me on the top of that table. I know that there's more than enough for me and my need up there, and even just the crumbs from you will do. And here's the beauty and the turning point of this passage. She's making her appeal to Jesus not on her goodness. She's making her appeal to Jesus simply on his goodness. She's coming to him simply because she believes that he is good. So this is the point, right? Don't miss the point of this story for all this talk about dogs and when they get to eat. The point is this woman's faith. This is the true gospel. This is true religion. 
she throws herself on Jesus because only he will do. There's no one like him. She's not looking for a quick fix. She's not looking for a boost. She's looking for new life. And she knows that he's the only one who can give it. And so she says, I'm not going to leave here until you bless me. I'm not going to do it. And the irony and punch of this whole thing is that the religious and self-entitled people, they miss it. But it's consistently the irreligious, the down and out. They're the ones who are constantly understanding we have no entitlement, no credentials. They're the ones getting blessed. They're the ones getting healed. They're the ones getting restored. And now here's where this falls in our lap. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves that way. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as not entitled. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as not being deserved something or not being owed privileges. We think of ourselves as, no, I do deserve some stuff, and I do deserve privileges, and, and surely I'm not that bad. We don't tend to look to Jesus for change and transformation. We go, I, I, well, I know I need some change, but not wholesale change. I just, just enough change to make me feel better about myself. I don't think I'm in need of new life. I just need a pick-me-up. We, don't, we just need a moral pick-me-up. We just need divine blessing for things that we already want. So my life is already going in a trajectory. I already know the things I want. God, I just need you to bless it. I just need you to be on board with my program. We just need Jesus for religious fuel for our political persuasions. But this is why anyone who comes in contact with Jesus and does it honestly, they end up having problems with Jesus because he doesn't play by our rules. He doesn't play by our rules. He, he won't be your moral mascot. Like, he won't do it. Like, if what you see Christianity is, is your, like, is your, like, trajectory of moral achievements, and I'm going to do enough for God so that when hard times come, he has to do something for me, it's not going to work that way because he's not a moral mascot. He doesn't promise you to be exempt from suffering, to be present with you in suffering. So you can't do goodness to get goodness back from him as though it's some sort of transaction. He won't bow to your political commitments. And he won't come to just give you your best life. He's come to give you new life and a future hope. And so this woman says, it's got to be you. It's got to be you or it's nothing. Even the leftovers from your table will be enough for me. But notice how Jesus responds at the end of this moment. He says to her, for this statement, you can go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus loves this woman's faith. He loves it. He loves that she sees and understands his goodness. This is true religion. The woman walks away blessed, not because of her goodness. She had none. She had a demon-possessed daughter. There wasn't even goodness in her home. She walks away blessed because of his goodness to her. This is true religion. The second piece is that true religion comes to us. Pick up with me in the next story. It says, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And then taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said, Apatha, that is, be opened. 
And his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more, they char- more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So here's what happens. Jesus moves on from his weekend retreat. He comes back into the Jewish provinces, but he comes into a place called the Decapolis, the center of the city, which even in Jewish provinces was a place largely populated with non-Jewish people. So again, Gentiles. There's still the contrast happening here. And they bring this deaf man to him, and they beg him to heal him. And what happens next is really bizarre. Jesus pulls this man aside, away from the crowds, and I love that he does this because it's as if to dignify this man. He's deaf, he can't speak, he's probably been a spectacle and looked at strange his whole life. And Jesus says, what's about to happen to this man is not a show. I'm not going to make a token of this man. I'm going to pull him aside because what's really important is his encounter with the living God. So he pulls him aside, and then Jesus does what we would expect him to do. He puts his fingers in this man's ears, (laughs) and then he spits and touches his tongue. What? Like, again, WWJD doesn't work here. It's, it, I don't know what's happening. Like, I was even talking to uh, Phil this week, and he was like, so did Jesus give this guy a wet willy? Like, <laughs> like what's happening? There's actually some, some conversation about what, what was happening here. Like, some commentators would say that he wasn't really doing anything strange. He was signing to this man. And there's others who would say, no, it's exactly as it reads plainly. He was doing this. And I actually don't think that any of that's the point. He prays and says, be opened. And so what is the point of this? Here's, here's sort of an interpretive thing that we have to know when we encounter a miracle in Scripture. The point of the miracles was never the miracle itself. That's never the point. Like, hey, just look, I can do a magic trick. The point of the miracles is not the miracle. The point of the miracle is what it points to beyond itself in the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so Mark's original readers would have picked up something really important in this passage that's difficult for us to see because we're reading in English. The word used to describe this man's condition as mute is only used one other place in Scripture. There's only two places in the entire Bible this is mentioned. They would have picked up on this reading in Greek. It's referenced in Isaiah 35, and it's talking about the coming of the Messiah. How do we know when the Messiah comes? How do we know the kingdom of God really has come? Isaiah 35 picks up. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, hear this if that's you today. Say though with an anxious heart, be strong, don't fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come with recompense. He will come and save you. And here's how we know this is happening. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. And here's the word. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And so Mark is shouting to us in this story the contrast of man-centered religion but then true religion of what God does. He's shouting to us, Jesus really is the one. This really is the kingdom breaking into our world, down to the letter, doing the things exactly as the scripture said he would. Jesus, the God-man, encounters this man in his burden, a man who can't do anything for himself. He can't fix himself. A man who would be an outsider unless God brings him in. And this is true religion. Check this. 
It's not you initiating with God. It's God initiating with you. It's not you identifying with God, but it's God identifying with you. It's not God making a spectacle of you as if to tokenize how amazing he is by helping poor people like us. It's him dignifying us, sending his son to live as us, die in our place, to redeem us as those made in his image. And he meets us like he meets this man. He opens our ears to hear truth and he looses our mouth to sing his praise. And so this brings us to the final piece. It's not just the nature of true religion. It's not just true religion coming to us. The last piece today, the big finish, is that true religion comes with a vengeance. True religion comes with a vengeance. So we're here in Isaiah 35. You're like, I thought we were in Mark chapter 7. What's happening here? Isaiah 35 interprets for us what's happening in Mark 7, but it also interprets for us everything we see happening in the ministry and the person of Jesus. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, don't fear, behold your God. He's going to come with vengeance and with the recompense, the payback, the retribution of God, and he will save you. You say, wait a second. Jesus didn't come with vengeance. He's not pulling out a sword. The Messiah has come. We see all of the healings. We see the signs, but he's not coming to maneuver a power play. He's not ruling over people. He's sticking his hands in people's ears. He's serving people. He's healing people. He's blessing people. He's bringing outsiders to his table. What does it mean? This whole vengeance piece, retribution. The Messiah has come. The signs are clear. And it is true. Jesus did come with vengeance. He came to make war, but not with people. Jesus came to declare war. Satan, his enemy, knows this, our enemy. Even those Bethlehem cries from that stable were a war cry. Your days are short and your head will soon be crushed. He came to declare war on Satan, sin, and death. That's why it says that he's going to come with vengeance. He's going to come with retribution. And that will actually be your salvation. Because Jesus comes to take no prisoners to have his people. The only way Jesus can bring outsiders to his table, like the Gentile woman, the only way Jesus can heal the man of his infirmities is if he goes to also pay the debt that we owe but that we can't pay. True religion comes with a vengeance to tear down every barrier. True religion comes with a vengeance to pay any cost. True religion comes with a vengeance to even lay down its own life in our place so that we can have new life. This is true religion. It's not us, but it's him. It's not our goodness, but it's his goodness. It's not our efforts to get to his table as though we possibly could, but it's his hospitality and invitation to get us to his table. It's not our ability to fix ourselves. We've tried that and we've failed miserably. True religion is his commitment to make us new. That's what's happening here. It's not our fine traditions and our external modifications to look like spiritual people. That doesn't get anybody anywhere. 
but it's him coming close to us to affect us at the level of the heart to make us new before the living God. So there's three questions I want to leave you with for reflection, and we'll pray. Where in your life do you base your comfort and confidence with God more on the pattern of your goodness than his? Hey, listen, that's like, (laughs) that's so much of my own struggle that I feel good with God so long as I've been good, and I feel bad with God if I've been bad. But our comfort and our confidence before God has nothing to do with our goodness, but everything to do with his. That's a different narrative to our shame, isn't it? Here's the second question. If true religion comes with a vengeance, not toward people, but toward the brokenness of our world, how does that call you to see and interact with people that you don't agree with? Man, that's a big deal, isn't it? Sometimes we think that our religion gives us permission to talk to people that don't agree with us in a certain way, in a certain tone, when it's actually our religion that that changes our tone, shifts our tone, and actually loves our enemies. You see it. Here's the last one. If true religion comes with a vengeance towards Satan, sin, and death, How should this change the way you see your battle with sin? The idea with our sin is not that we make peace treaties to just cope and live with it. The idea is that we understand the victory is won, and so we'll have our temporary battle now. Because it comes with a vengeance for new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your pattern in the world is not all that we have to do to get to you, but your pattern in the world is everything you've done to get to us. God, thank you that you don't receive us based on our commitment to get near you, but you receive us because you were committed to get near us. Jesus, thank you that you Don't put asterisks on your kindness to us based on our goodness, but that you open wide the bucket of grace because of your goodness. God, would you form us as people of true religion? Not us, but you. Not what we do, but what you've done. Form us as your people, Jesus. We offer this prayer in your name. Amen.